Uh, it's just a group of people that really uh, love Jesus and want to worship Jesus, and we do that a, a, a ton of different ways, but one of the primary ways we do it is by just sitting under God's Word and sitting under the teaching of how He's revealed Himself and what He's said about um, His person work, namely in the work of Jesus Christ. So if you guys don't, if you don't own a Bible, there are Bibles in the back you can grab. It's our gift to you. Please keep it. Enjoy it. Read it. We also love to resource you, so uh, there are a few books back of this small little easy read, What Is God? Uh, one of us anyways, please go and pick that book up before you leave. It's just, you, whether you're in third grade, you have a PhD, you're 85, it's, a, it's an easy read for you that you can follow and finish in a week or, or a couple days and hand to your neighbor. But it's basically a, the best overview on the Old Testament, New Testament, what the whole Bible is saying. So I uh, just encourage you to pick one of those up uh, if you get a chance to read and enjoy. Um, and uh, other than that, we're going to uh, dive in. How many of you guys feeling alert with daylight savings? Yeah, the setup team this morning is like, God is sanctifying you this morning, putting you on the one day of the year where you lose an hour of sleep. So um, God is gracious. Let's pray, and then let's uh, just enjoy what he might, might want to say. God, thank you that you're a God that uh, speaks. Uh, thank you that you speak through words and that you've spoken through your written word. Father, I pray that as we see the word made flesh, Jesus Christ, more in this book, in this text, that we would love you more, their affections would grow for you, that we would love each other more, that the kingdom would advance forward because of your work here. God, thank you for churches that are gathering all around the state and nation today. God, would you be good and kind in letting the soil be fertile for the hearers and the words be rich and then fall and bear fruit and dig roots that cause trees to grow with gospel fruit. God, convict us, we need to be convicted. God, open ears, we need to be opened. Open eyes, we need to see. God, thank you that it's only through the Holy Spirit's illumination we can understand anything that is understood and spiritually discerned today. So would you do that for us? In your gracious name, Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen. So uh, open up to Luke chapter 9. We've been uh, walking through the gospel according to Luke. If you're just visiting and dropping in, um, the, Luke is, is a gospel. It's one of four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And, and this gospel basically has been laying out for us the life and teachings of Jesus. And so Luke is a writer who was a doctor. He was a physician. He wants to be sure that, that Theophilus, this Roman official, and others understand that, that he is who he says he is, and not just that we believe Jesus and his life and teachings, but that we actually are transformed by him, that we are transformed by the information we receive. So we're going to keep saying and keep praying for and keep begging God to give us transformed hearts and not just informed minds, because as the mind is informed, the hearts grow in affections for God and grow in love for God, and so that's what we want to see. And so as we've been going through Luke, we've been walking through his life and teachings, walking through, I'm just seeing him do miracles, seeing him bring the kingdom of God, and, and here's what you're going to have this morning. This morning is the single most important turning point in Luke. Okay, so Luke chapter 9, verse 51. If you came today, you came on a good, I mean, every Sunday is a good day, but, but this is the day where we are going to get finally to where Jesus is, it's been all about his arrival. It's been all about him coming. All the Old Testament longings that have been pointing to the personal work of Jesus Christ are going to be rolled out. So for all the time throughout centuries, redemptively, and then you've got 32 years of Jesus on the earth, it's been his arrival, right? It started with the announcement from the angel to Zechariah, then to Mary, then to the angels, then to shepherds, then to, to the wise men. And then we have John the Baptist proclaiming that the Messiah is here, that, that Jesus is here, the Son made flesh. Then we have Jesus come and even announce it himself. Hey, this is the kingdom of God. It is, it is here. It is for the spiritually bankrupt, the spiritually poor, the spiritually oppressed, the spiritually blind. And then we have this kind of rolling out all the way to here where he's going to turn his face 
towards Jerusalem, where it'll focus on his going. So it'll, it'll shift from this welcoming, everybody exalting him to wanting to kill him, humiliate him, hatred, violence. You're going to see a shift here in the tone of Luke uh, in, a, in a pretty big, substantial way. So let's pick it up in verse 51, chapter 9. This is what we read, and here's what Jesus is going to show us here. He's going to show us um, the evidence and the cost of following Jesus. Uh, so the evidence of a, d- a disciple and the cost of being a disciple, verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. So this is just what we were talking about. He, he's had 32 years of arriving, and now he's got a couple months left of departing. So the rest of Luke is going to focus on him going to the cross where he were, will die to rescue and ransom those he will call to himself. So, so we're going to see all that happen here, but from here on out, the, the, the tone changes and and there's now going to be mockery there's going to be hatred there's going to be volatile hearts there's going to be people who all the people you see right now that love him that are like heal me help me cure me are going to be the people that are going to stand and say crucify him right you're going to see this shift happen this this amazing transition of the heart that's going to happen in the in the hearts of people as he walks towards jerusalem verse 52 so now he's he's on his gaze and understand um he sets his face this isn't like this is resolute This is resolved. This is, I'm going to accomplish what the Father wants me to accomplish. This isn't like he was walking one day and thought, "Mm, I think I'm just going to head to Jerusalem now and get killed. I mean, this is in the plan. This is the plan A. This is God's providence for Jesus Christ, the Son, who will willingly do this. So he is now saying definitively, I'm going. Okay, this is why I came, this is what I came to do. All that you've been hearing for nine, we- nine chapters behind this is all pointing towards this end. Verse 52, this is what happens. They're going to try to go to Jerusalem, but kind of make some pit stops on the way. As he sent messengers ahead of him who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set towards Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord... Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. Okay, so so Jesus sends messengers out basically to just make preparations, to prepare a place to stay for them. And it's kind of like a meandering journey up to Jerusalem. And interesting, the first place we're going to head is Samaria. Now, now if you know anything historically, you know that the Samaritans and Jews hated each other. Okay, there, there is great hostility here. Now, now main, one of the main reasons there's hostility here is because um, when the northern and southern kingdoms split, they had um, some of the Israelites would stay, and they actually married off with the Assyrians who were loyal to the Assyrian king. And so Jews basically said, hey, well, you've basically given up your heritage, given up who you are as a Jew. You're now kind of thrown in the town. That so, so there was this real hostility there, this real jealousy there. And so here you have him going to the very place where the Jews felt like they were a bunch of mixed breeds. They didn't like them. You can actually... Josephus, a first century historian, Jewish historian, said that actually Jews would try to walk miles and miles and miles around Samaria. Even though it was a straight shot, if you went through Samaria, they'd go around it, across the Jordan twice. If they went through, sometimes they were murdered by Samaritans because they were Jewish. I mean, a lot of times people wouldn't welcome them. This is uh, an understandable historical thing. And so it is very interesting that Jesus chooses to go to Samaritans. Whoa. Here's the other piece you, you got to get as they head towards Samaria, um, and that's this. The, the Jews, remember we've been saying over and over, viewed themselves as the holy people of God, right? So, so the Messiah came for them. 
as a nation. And here's what's amazing. We saw starting in Luke chapter 4 that Jesus comes and preaches a different sermon. Right, they're going, well, this is, this is a national thing, an ethnicity thing. And he gets up, and his first sermon out of Isaiah 61 is, hold on a second. This is not a national thing. This is a global thing. Okay? Anyone who's going to enter this kingdom enters understanding they are spiritually bankrupt before God. They're spiritually poor, blind, oppressed, and they need a provision. And I'm that provision. And we saw how that just outraged the Jews to where they actually wanted to throw them off cliffs and do crazy stuff to them. And so here Jesus has said all of this. And so this is classic unconventional Jesus. Let me, let me go where people don't want to go. And haven't we just been seeing this in Jesus' heart? He hangs out with the outcast, the lowly, the prostitutes, the tax collectors, the sinners. Haven't we been seeing that? Isn't that beautiful how this is so Jesus? Of course he's going to go where the hatred exists. Of course he's going to go where people don't want to go. Of course he's going to head right through Samaria where they hate Jews. And Jesus is a Jew. And so they, they take their track. They're going straight through. And, and isn't it amazing? As I was uh, studying this, I remember because Jesus, is, what's he doing? He's tearing down all religious assumptions. He's, he's destroying all stereotypes, right? Because who is it in John 4 who he actually announces his messiahship to? A Samaritan at a well, right? Who, who's the hero of one of the greatest stories we read in the good Samaritan? The Samaritan who actually notices the man. It's actually an outright rebuke to Jewish leaders because they all pass by and don't want to help him, yet the Samaritan helps him. You have the great commission. Where does he say, hey, go to Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. That's where you're going to go, Right? Why don't you go into all those places where the gospel can shine forth and do its work because God loves to save wicked people. He loves to save sinners. I mean, that's one of the things you're seeing here right here is that God's just a God of mercy, right? I mean, by, by essence of who he is, God is a God of mercy and grace. He goes where others will not go. No one is outside the grace of God. Like, like no one can run from that. Now, I know there are some of you here who constantly believe that you have somehow outsend everything Jesus could do for you. Because you've got your rap sheet in the past, or you've got your little details, or your secret sins, or and every time you think about those things, and it's painted against the bloody Jesus hanging, taking on the wrath of God for your sin, and, be, and paying your debt, and giving you his righteousness, you don't believe it. You think he's waiting till 10 years from now, you clean yourself up and look nicer, and then somehow it's going to be applied to you. That's the beauty of the gospel is that, man, he saved you while you were in your sin. Like, that is fundamentally what it means to be a Christian. I am imperfect. I am spiritually blind, spiritually oppressed by sin, enslaved by this. I need a provision for me to free me from that. And Jesus does that and allows you to walk in holiness, walk in grace, walk in the light, and not to be enslaved by that anymore. But, man, we rejoice in that, not because we're good. Not because we were somehow walking a pretty good life, so Jesus picked us and said, hey, I'll atone for you, I'll forgive. You know, it's unconditional, based on no merit of our own. Even the faith God gives is a gift, so that we have nothing to boast in on the day of judgment. And he says, you're mine. We say, I am his, and he gets all glory for it. What, what, a, what, a, what a beautiful picture. So he's going, let's just go through, through Samaria. Let's go where there's hatred. Let's go where there's people who don't want to go there. It's powerful. And so he continues on. The disciples get to the village here, right, in this, in this text. And they go, hey, you just kind of picture it. They show up. And they're like, hey, uh, we've got a group of guys. And 12 of us are preachers. Uh, one's God. So clean up the joint. 
right? I mean, we got not only 12 priests, we got one guy who's actually God. So can you get ready? What do the Samaritans say? Nah, we don't want you. Oh, and we know that you're Jewish, and we know you're going to go worship at Jerusalem. Your face is set towards Jerusalem, and that's where you're headed, and we don't worship there anymore. So we're not going to make it easier for you on your journey. And naturally, as, as you see this, this is typical. This is a typical Samaritan response to anyone who was Jewish passing through. This isn't weird. This isn't bizarre. bizarre. But look at James and John. Look at, look at their reaction. They're ticked off. Look at what they say. Hey, Jesus, you want us to light them up? what like you got flamethrowers you know what i'm saying like they they go do you can can we just call fire from heaven to consume them now now this is interesting guys this is so interesting because jesus jesus hasn't done anything like this he hasn't consumed anybody with fire right he, he's raised the dead to life he's he's healed the sick set the blind see the deaf hear he He's never brought down fire from heaven on the earth in his incarnational ministry. So what would make them think that he would do this? I think there's an obvious connection because, remember, James and John were the guys who were at the transfiguration we talked about two weeks ago. And, and who did they meet up with? Moses and Elijah? And they see them. And I think this probably triggered a response in James and John. They're thinking, okay, if I remember my Old Testament right, Elijah... Man, he actually was given authority to consume the people, bring down fire and incinerate them when they rejected Elijah. And Jesus is much greater than Elijah. So if they're rejecting him, man, we should just light him up. I mean, can't we do that? I mean, can you see their rationale? Can you see their, their line of thinking and how this seems to maybe make sense for them? And I love what Jesus says. Jesus rebukes him. And he says, hold on a second. You guys are going to walk in, and we're going to share the gospel of grace with one person. The first person to reject me, you just want to light them up with fire and burn them? That's not even sensible. Now, in, in, in one piece, there's, there's, I think, two reasons here. One reason I think we know he doesn't do this, we're going to see later in Luke 12, is because Jesus is actually going to demonstrate and show how he's actually going to take this fire for us. That the, the right judgment of God that is due us, he's going to take so we don't have to take it. The reason he didn't light up the Samaritans was because he was going to a cross and taking the judgment and the fire for them. For those who would trust in his name. Powerful. You, you, you can read this. That's what, he, that's what he does for us, right? So that the, the fire of God, the judgment of God doesn't fall on us. That's what he does. He, he goes to the cross and he takes it for you. So you, so you can stand uncondemned before God. That, that's, that's what happens. And so you're going to see later Luke 12. I don't want to give away that sermon, but that's where we're, we're going to go later. And so uh, this is why if you look at salvation history over and over and over throughout salvation history, what do they do? They take, when they were atoning for sin, they would take it and put it on the altar and they would light it on fire. It was this way of saying, I, does this put away my sin? Does this, does this do it enough? Does this get rid of it? Like that was fire. That was the symbolic nature of fire. How else can I just get rid of sin and Jesus actually takes the fire he's our sacrifice he lays on the altar for sinners and God scorches him for us powerful profound just amazing seeing this and so it doesn't come down to Samaritans it doesn't come down on those of us who trusted him because it came down on Jesus Christ but there's something else here that, that's just a sidebar uh, the other thing here is I, th I think he's getting at when a heart has been burned by the gospel 
like when you've been changed, when, when you are like made fully aware of wh- who he is and what he's done for you, it doesn't create harshness in you. It actually softens you. It actually makes you gentle. It doesn't make you go after people and be like, see how committed I am? You're not committed. I mean, these James and John were trying to prove how committed they were to Jesus. See these people? Let's light them up. Do you see how self-righteous that is? How arrogant that is? How harsh that is? See, guys, when the gospel lays on your heart, it makes you gentle with others. It doesn't make you aggressive. And, and we're seeing here this, I think, this beautiful place where Jesus rebukes them. And Jesus is saying, you don't even get it. This is an evidence that the gospel has shaped you. It's a fruit of the Spirit, right? Galatians 5, gentleness, meekness, self-control. So hold on a second. No, 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 you don't get it. Disciple, my disciples aren't terrorists. They're not ISIS. They've been saved by grace. They're the most gracious people on the planet. Have you already forgotten what you were saved from and how you were saved into the kingdom of God? You didn't do anything. You were just like the Samaritans. Talked about that last week. Titus 3. I love Titus 3. Don't forget who you were. Don't forget all of us walked that way. 1 Corinthians will say that as well, man. But the grace of God showed up and saved you. And you were not more pretty. You were not better. You are not more kind. And then the gospel makes you gentle and gracious with others. Because, man, every conversion is a miracle. You were. Every conversion. So, so it's not this weird. So here's just, let me just ask the question. Since you've become a Christian, have you become more gentle with others or more harsh? I attend six community groups. How many you attend? Right? Well, I attend this many Sundays. How many you attend? I haven't seen you in a while. Like, what's the posture of your heart, right? This is how I live. How do you live? Not in the kingdom of God. That's not God's people. God's people are gracious. Yes, they, they call out sin. Yes, they love to warn people and plead with people to repent and turn to Christ. But we have no right on execution. We don't have any right to, to decide what execution looks like in judgment. God alone does that. Has God made your heart soft to others and gracious towards others and gentle with others? The gospel does that. You're, you're an oxymoron if you're an arrogant, harsh Christian. Right? That, that's, that's antithesis of what Jesus came to do and what he has done for you. Now, I want to just say this. This isn't directly related, but let me just, just say. Let's see it was happening then. The church historically, you've got the Crusades, you've got the Inquisitions, you've got even parts of the Reformation where there were people who acted in the name of Jesus and have defamed the name of Jesus in their harshness happened i mean james and john are here trying to do it so so if it was back then walking with jesus other people who love the lord are going to fail they are sinners they are imperfect so they're going to do that too that doesn't mean we follow them it doesn't mean we do what they do we respond the way the gospel has called us to act and to respond but let's not forget that we've seen this temptation in the human heart even in movements talked about that last week we saw this amazing picture of of just Jesus dismantling the pride of how that separates individuals and it separates groups and pits churches against churches. And we're even seeing James and John forgetting what they saw on the Mount of Transfiguration, the glory of Jesus Christ that had 
transcended all their understanding and saved them in his future work, and it still hadn't rid them of their harshness. Hold on. I know the Samaritans are wicked, but have you forgotten who you are? I can hear Jesus saying that underneath his breath as he's walking with them. And so Jesus reveals one of the evidences of discipleship is that very thing. You're gracious. You're, you're gentle. Look at now the cost. You're going to move to the cost of discipleship, verse 57. As they're going along, now they're, they're continuing. They didn't stay at the village. They maybe slept outside somewhere. They, they keep going because Jesus is on a mission. He's headed to Jerusalem. So we're going along the road. Someone said to him, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests. and The son of man has nowhere to lay his head. To another, he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, first let me go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, let leave the dead to bury their own dead. But as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I'll follow you, Lord. But let me first say farewell to those at home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. <laughs> nice light section, right? This here, here's Jesus, Luke chapter 9. And, and here's what we're seeing. On the way to Jerusalem, he meets three different people. And to each of them, he says, hey, follow me, right? First guy says, I'll follow you anywhere, Jesus. I see you're supreme. I see you're worthy. I see your works. I know where you're headed. I'll, I'll follow you. And then he says, well, that's, that's a great thought. I, lo I, love, I love the idea there. That's a true statement. But I see something else going on in your heart, though. There's a motivation that's a little off. You've got this place where you love to lay your head. You've got comforts at home. You've got a standard of living. Are you willing to prioritize me above that? Like, like, I don't know what kind of savior you think I am. I'm not the kind of, hey, relieve oppression, set up shop. I'm actually going to be killed. I'm going to suffer. I'm headed to Jerusalem. It might be costly. It might not be easy. Are you willing to prioritize me over even your comforts? Do you love your comfort more than Jesus? Is basically what he's asking. Will I come before that? We're going to give themes for all these. Look at the second guy. The second guy responds to Jesus. Jesus says, follow me. And the guy goes, okay, but let me bury my dad first. Now just to understand something culturally here, just so you guys aren't off a little bit. It's highly unlikely that his father was already dead. What's, what's likely is he's working for his dad, he's working for his father, and he goes, okay, hey, once my father dies, and then I get to own everything, I get my big inheritance, okay, then I'm going to follow you, but you got to wait till my dad dies. Money, right? And this is why Jesus says to him, hold on, let the dead bury the own de their own dead. Isn't that weird? Dead people can't bury dead people. You ever read Jesus, and you're like, what is he talking about? If you haven't, you need to be preaching. But you know what I'm saying? Like, it's just like, what is he, what is he talking about? Dead? He's talking about spiritual deadness. Like, like, you don't get it. He's saying, hold on. If you understand who I am and what I've done, if you see my works, if you see the fire I've taken for you, and I am not the center of your life, I'm not the center by which all other planets in your self-world, your self-existence operate, you just don't get it. You're spiritually blind. You're spiritually dead. Let the spiritually dead bury their own dead. Like, you don't understand. You don't understand my worth then. Like, you don't understand who's calling you, who's asking you. That's why Jesus says this and looks at him. So maybe there's some of us in this room, right? We, we look at what Jesus has done. We understand Christianity means to make Christ first in all things. But we say, I've got my career. I've got my lands. I've got my agendas. 
got this person I want to just kind of have a fling with and date. I've got this thing going on over here. These things I want to set up before I follow Jesus yet. I'll do it, Jesus, just not right now. It's not convenient. Then I would just say that we don't understand the worth of Jesus. We don't understand who he is. We don't understand his supreme worth. That's why he's just simply laying these things out before them. The third guy says, well, I don't have a comfort issue. I don't have a money issue. I got a family issue. He goes, hey, let me go home first and say goodbye. And Jesus says, it's the same issue for you as the other two. It's just an issue of priority. It doesn't matter which one it is or which one you want to pick. And that's why he says, no one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. When you plow a field, you are singularly focused on plowing the field. When you are a Christian, you are singularly focused on pursuing Jesus Christ. Right? So listen, and this, this, this um, wording here is really bad. Okay, fit for is really the word useful. You're not useful for the kingdom of God. Because listen, it's not about how committed you are that gets you in the kingdom. Okay, listen, please don't hear that. Jesus isn't saying that. The text isn't saying that. We know that, that no one is good to get in the kingdom of God. It's grace alone that gets you in, right? Right, so, so it's not that he's saying, hey, if you don't lean into, plead with, follow, love, see as supreme, Jesus Christ, singularly focus to him, you will not be useful for the kingdom of God, right? You, you won't be useful. You won't advance the kingdom. You'll be so preoccupied for your wants, lusts, and loves that how could you possibly make Jesus look great and his kingdom look worthwhile? He's saying, man, this is all about priority. This is all about me taking preeminence in your heart. Powerful. Jesus is just revealing their hearts. Now look, the, the problem Jesus is getting at, the issue here, guys, is there's no such thing as but first in following Jesus. There's really not. Otherwise, you just don't get it. You don't get who he is. You don't understand the grace in the gospel of Jesus Christ. There's no such, it's all an issue of priority here. And we do this all the time, right? Especially see it in college students. Some of you college students in here, yeah, yeah, I'll follow Jesus. But first, can I just like enjoy college? And just get away for a little bit and try this out and just experience the world. And then, hey, five years from now, I'll, I'll follow him. I mean, some of us, we're older. I'd rather kind of do these things I want to do, live my life the way I want to live, not be to any demands. I don't want Jesus infringing on my sin or anything else, man. But then later, yeah, I'll follow when I'm like 50, 60, when I'm retired. I don't, I, don't, I don't know where we get this idea that somehow the God of the universe is obligated to be at your bidding for when he will unveil your heart and open your eyes to the glorious nature of the gospel. Like, like. Guys, you're not promised that, that tomorrow, today might be the only single day that God graciously called you here, wooed you here, warned you about the coming judgment, warned you about his, his love and his goodness in his wrath, in his grace, all that makes God, God, his perfect attributes. He may be just today saying, hey, do you hear me? Are you going to turn to me? And then, and then you may say, yeah, well, I hear all this today, but I got all this other stuff I want to do, and so maybe next week, maybe I'll. Guys, that's a dangerous place to be terrifying place to be the the fact that we believe the holy spirit's at our bidding so we're going to tell him 10 years from now that we're going to follow him then you're not guaranteed that you're not guaranteed you're even going to have a desire for him then 
All you know is today. I'm going to say he's good today. He's saving today. He's supreme today. He's paramount today. He's a priority today. I'm, I'm, I'm following him. I'm after him. I'm dying to my wants, dying to myself. I counted the cost. I understand what he's asking, what he's saying. I'm in. Or we say, I'll put it on the back burner and I'll wait till later, which probably will never happen. Probably never happen. And so Jesus is giving a very, very good, gracious warning. The issue with each one of these people did something to do first. That's the issue. They all had something else to do first before following him. And, you know, the reason this text is so precious to me and my family is because this is actually the text that God used to, to bring my wife and I here to plant this church. I was actually down in South Carolina. I was actually preaching at a conference in South Carolina and uh, to a, a bunch of students in this text, actually Luke 9, Luke 14. And I remember it's the only time this has ever happened to me ever in a sermon. I couldn't finish my sermon. I got halfway through this sermon and I just knew the God of the universe was saying, Mike, you're doing that very thing with my call on your life to move. And I kept saying, but first, we just bought a townhouse. Let, let's stay there. And But first, let me finish seminary. But first, let me just stay a little bit longer at the church I'm at. It's nice. They provide well. I had a list. But first, let me do this, Jesus. But first, let me do this, Jesus. But I was so overcome by the conviction of the Holy Spirit that God used this text in his grace to say, no, no, no. There's no such thing as but first. Not with me. When I'm calling you to do something, you go do it. Or I'll move on. This is a, a precious, precious grace from God. Where, where is it in your life where you're just saying, yeah, but first, Jesus. Yeah, but first, Jesus. Where is he calling you to come and die to yourself now to follow him? And, and understand, guys, Jesus is just testing the treasures of your heart. He knows exactly what competes in your heart for allegiance and affections for him. He knows it. God, we've been seeing him do it all throughout Luke. That's what's been amazing. He always says he discerned what's in their hearts. He reasoned what was in their hearts. Last week, remember, he did that with the disciples. He didn't have to say anything. He knows what's competing already, and he's kind enough to expose that, to rid it of that, so then you can follow him and enjoy him more fully. Why well, he does it? It's because he loves you. It's because it's in his grace and in his kindness. And in others, it's in his warning. But just amazing thing that we, that we see here that Jesus is doing, that he looks straight into our hearts every morning and every evening. So what are you attached to? The cost is attachment to the things of this world. So is it your popularity? Is it your appearance? Is it your worth? Is it, what is it that you're attached to? Jesus is saying, I'm testing the treasure in your heart that's competing in allegiance for me. Guys, we know there's a reason he does it, right? We don't take offense at this because the goal is him. The goal is winning you to himself. Follow me is the goal. You get me. You get Jesus. You get the God-made flesh who ransomed your sinful soul to himself and loves you fully, knowing you fully. Who loves you not only as a slave when you do what is right, but loves you as a son even when you rebel. You get Jesus. He doesn't love you like that. He doesn't go to extend grace like that. This is why, guys, one, one of my prayers, I, I go in the back room, this is where we keep the stuff, and each Sunday morning I pray and I read over the sermon before I come in here. And that's why, guys, as I do that, here's what I pray almost every single Sunday morning for us as a faith family. 
my prayer is always, I hope that as we dive into this text and read, it doesn't cause us to simply go home and say, yeah, I think I'm going to give a little bit more. Yeah, I think I'll be a little bit more pure this week. Yeah, I think I'm going to attend church a little bit more regularly. No, I, my, my prayer is that we leave home going, if anything infringes on the allegiance, love, affections for Jesus, we'll push it to the side. Like, I don't care what it is. I just want it out of my life because it is decreasing joy. Not decreasing joy. I'm buying the lie that sin, that making something else ultimate and outside of Jesus is actually going to satisfy the roots of my heart. It's never going to work. So we run the cul-de-sac of insanity and keep trying what won't work, thinking it might work. Until you finally say, okay, I see that God's after my joy, after my affections for him, because it does something for you and for him. It gives you greater joy, peace, contentment, and it gives him great glory. And so you say, let me just get out, push out to the side all those spaces in me that Jesus alone knows. He looks into the mirror of your heart every morning you wake up and says, hey, that, that area right there? Can I graciously, can we discuss that? Can we have a chat about that? Are you willing to die to that for me so I can fill that area? And I have more allegiance here, a priority over this than this. And Jesus does it graciously. Would you listen and respond to him in grace? And this is why I used to think, as I was, as I was growing up, I used to think God was happy with anything. Like, like growing up in junior high, I don't know if you guys remember junior high days, if you grew up in the church, right? I remember the junior high worship leader. He was a great guy. But man, he, he, he would, I'd walk in, he would just try to like give us candy to sing louder. You know what I mean? And then, then guys versus girls, right? So we would try to sing louder and, and then let's do this and this game and this game. And I, I actually grew up thinking in my head that, that God was a God who sat in heaven and looked down going, man, hey, oh good, Mike's singing. Oh good, Mike showed up to church. And then I read Malachi like four years later. I don't know if you read that book. I just want to show one text on the screen. I, I was reading Malachi, and th this is what I read. It's about these priests showing up, giving sacrifices to God, but they weren't their best. It's amazing what God says to them. Verse 8, when you offer blind animals in sacrifice, is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. Will he accept you and show you favor? See, this is what the priests were doing. The Old Testament, they, would, they were supposed to take their most perfect, unblemished lamb and bring it for God to sacrifice to atone for sin. But, but here's what they were doing. They're, they're grabbing their three-legged, one-eyed cancer bah, sheep, right? Like, hey, I'm going to grab that guy and throw him up on the altar. I mean, you see what I'm saying? Like, and God's looking down going, hold on, hold on a second. I don't want that. I don't want your leftovers. Wait, you're going to, I'd rather you just shut the doors of the temple. And he says, is that not evil? And I remember reading this. I still remember sitting on the couch I was at reading this text going, man, God, I don't want to be that guy. Like, I don't want to be that guy who just who shows up and God's going, man, what is that? I mean, why even show up? Why, are you, why even sing? I mean, I mean, give that to your governor. I mean, even, even on a human level, is he going to receive that from you? And, and I'm the king of all kings, man. <laughs> and here he's just laying it out before it says, is that not evil? And the whole idea here is these priests going, hey, at least I showed up. At least I brought something. Look what he says in verse 10. Oh, that there were among you those who would shut the door, that you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand, for my name, favorite part, will be great among the nations, says the Lord of hosts. Because you know what I wish? I wish someone 
you just shut the doors and close it on them. That's sobering. Man, I hope God never serves the calf. I wish he just shuts the doors. Right? This, this is real life. This is, this is the God we're, we're walking into communion with to worship and celebrate and, and to give offering and sacrifice to. And here, these people, God is saying, just shut the temple doors. I mean, how, how true is this of our hearts, though? Before we start stoning everybody in the Bible, those priests, I would have brought my favorite goat. How true is this? Okay, let me pray this prayer. And here, Lord, here's my life. Okay, but hold on a second. Okay, I just, I just, I know I just said I gave you my life, but hold on. I'm going I'm to keep most of it. And if I have any time left, any money left, any energy left, you can have that. Right? So, so but, but let me kind of orient myself and do what I want. But anything else, my leftovers, sure, you can have that. Where are you doing that with Jesus in your finances and in your time and in your energy? And where it's really all about you. You never gave him your life. You never surrendered your life. You never really leaned into him and trusted him and made him Lord and Savior of your life. It's on your agenda. It's on your wants. It's the contract you have that you listed out and you signed at the bottom. And if God doesn't fulfill all of these, then I'm out. And if he does fulfill all these, then I'm in. You forgot you were in a covenant with God that he makes based upon what he's done, based on no act, effort, performance on you. And because of that, you're changed. So you're not acting. Transformation flows from identity. Your identity's been changed, and now there's transformation bubbling out of your heart where you're asking him to allow himself to do these things. And I love that God says, hey, I'm a great God. You know my name's going to be great anyways? So you can jump on board or, like, like, you can join me in this if you want. My name's going to be great. So whether you walk in here half-hearted with leftovers or not, my name's still going to be supreme. And at the end of it all, Philippians 2, every knee's going to bow, right? Every president, every candidate, every terrorist, everybody, most powerful, most liberal, most conservative, most poor, most rich, is going to bow their knee. His name will be great, right? We know that day's coming, right? As Christians, we believe this. So how does this shape us now? How does it shape our worship, shape Jesus coming now saying in Luke 9, revealing the heart, revealing priority, going, hold on a second. Do you know who I am? Do you know what I've done for you? Do you see the fire I took for you when you deserved it? Did you, did you, do you know that I hung for you in your place? I paid the debt you could never pay on your own? That I gave you righteousness that you could never obtain based upon your merit or morality or excellence or performance? That's what he's revealing here. He's revealing in Luke 9 the true understanding of his supreme worth and worth on the cross transforms you. And so Jesus says to these people and to us, you know, you can't give the purchase of your heart to anybody else. Career can't buy it. Friends can't give it to you. Relationships can't resolve it. I'm the only one that can purchase it for you. It's identity here. It's priority here. It's becoming a Christian here. Jesus, I love this, this. Jesus knows exactly what's competing for our hearts. He knows what you need, guys. I love in, in the text at the end of, of Luke 9 where he, he basically, you see how he just answers everyone so perfectly because he knows what they need? Like the first guy says, hey, I'll follow you anywhere. He goes, hey, go home and think about it. 
Then the next guy says, he says, follow me. And he goes, nah, you should probably, he goes, I want to go home and think about it. And he goes, no, follow me. You see that? Like Jesus is, it is funny. It's like, I love reading Jesus because the things he says. And so with you this morning, he knows exactly what you need. What is he saying to you? What is the Holy Spirit of God revealing to you? Let's, let's ask him to graciously do that and, and, and expose us for our joy and his glory. God, thank you that, that we are weak, feeble people, that we, that we come to you with nothing to give you but what is already yours. God, thank you that, that the kingdom of God is to be entered by grace, through faith. And God, thank you that the cost really isn't a cost. God, would you help my own heart this morning deal with what needs to be dealt with? Father, you know the wrestlings that were inside of me this week. As you graciously looked into the window of my own heart and said, Mike, here is where there's wrong allegiance and wrong priority. You've forgotten my worth, forgotten my greatness, forgotten my supremacy. You've forgotten the good, gracious work of my son on the cross. You've forgotten that my son took the fire for you. Maybe there are others of you in this room and, and you don't know Jesus. You came in just curious and can I just commend to you that, that Jesus is not looking for you to be something 10 years from now that, that in the, the secret sins, in the darkest places you've ever walked, he says that's when I'm going to die for you. That's when I'm going to display love to you. So, so the gospel delivers us from fear that says we could never do enough to please him and also delivers us from pride thinking that we have done enough so we don't need him. Father, thank you that, that the good work of Jesus makes us gentle people. Would you form that here in this church? Would you form that in your church at large, a people who are gentle and quick to forgive, quick to sense grace and God, that, that harshness would be ridded from us. We would not play judge, that you would play judge, but in love we would love people in calling them to repentance and examination of their hearts. But God, would we do it in ways that honor you, that are gospel people. Father, would you also help us to see where we might be needing to count the cost? Would you help us, Father, in your grace? Would you make our marriage sweeter? Would you make our family life in the home more worshipful? Would you make our day-to-day -day commute into work more singularly focused on you and the things of Jesus and the joy in being an ambassador and a worker of you? And fathers, we just take the Lord's Supper, something you've given to the church. Would we again remember and treasure the primary, the pinnacle of it all, the sacrifice of your son who broke his body, shed his blood to ransom and rescue us into your kingdom. You counted a cost that was infinite and you satisfied it for us on our behalf. God, may we give thanks today for that and remembrance in Jesus' name, amen.